Energy security and self-sufficiency top of mind with the news of a massive gas find on the borders of Dubai and Abu Dhabi. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast coming from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. With me is Kelsey Warner, the National's Future Editor. Hi, Kelsey. Hi, Mustafa. Uh, happy to say in the studio with us this week is Suzanne Gandhi. She's a leading UAE businesswoman who's also an expert in culture and leadership transformation, as well as the future of work. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, and we'll definitely talk about the future of work uh, a little bit later on and hear what you're up to. Um, but for now, I'd like to stick with uh, oil and gas, if that's okay. Um, we, As I mentioned, uh, there was a big source of energy discovered in the UAE on about 5,000 square kilometers of land on the border between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Uh, this will be jointly explored by both Emirates. Um, and uh, it's sort of pushing towards this idea that the the UAE could eventually be self-sufficient in gas, um, self-sufficient in the generation of electricity, um, and also could one day be an exporter of gas. Uh, I'm happy to say that the Nationals Energy Correspondent Jennifer Niana is with us as well in the studio. Hi, Jennifer. Hello. So what did you make of this uh, latest, you could argue, in a string of announcements mm -hmm. about oil and gas fines in the UAE? So we've seen over the last three years, ADNOC have announced several discoveries of conventional and unconventional gas, and also a few emirates such as Sharjah and Ras al-Khaimah have had their own gas licensing rounds. And most recently, we've had uh, Sharjah announce uh, a new gas find. So they've tested uh, flow rates, and they've said that they could possibly use this gas potential to power some of uh, Sharjah's residents and, in and industry. Now, this new gas find in Jebel Ali the, it's estimated to hold about 80 trillion cubic feet of gas. It's quite significant. It's shallow gas. So the previous discoveries in uh, Abu Dhabi, the conventional and uh, unconventional gas, and largely sour gas, which requires a lot of investment, a lot of expertise. And ADNOC, over the last two years, they've brought in foreign investment, foreign partners to help uh, unlock these sour gas caps. Now, because it's shallow gas, the development costs associated with this field are relatively low, and the gas will be supplied to Dubai, which uh, depends on gas imports to meet its electricity demand. Now, across the UAE, uh, n electricity needs are met by gas supplies around 98% of, of electricity needs. So this will go a long way in ensuring that electricity demands in Dubai and also in Abu Dhabi. Uh, will be met. This aspect of self-sufficiency was really interesting to me because I think it would be really surprising to most readers that the UAE isn't self-sufficient on, you know, the resources that it gets. So can you talk a little bit about that move towards self-sufficiency and where it's at right now? The UAE is the third largest producer within OPEC. Uh, they produce around 3 million barrels of oil. And this year, they have a target to raise production capacity to 4 million. However, they're not self-sufficient in gas reserves. Uh, the UAE has to import about half of its, of its gas needs to power uh, industry. As I said before, over, over 95%, around 98% uh, of power plants run on gas. Now, this is being changed. We're adding nuclear possibly this year with the Baraka nuclear power plant. There's also significant solar capacity being added. But while the UAE transitions to a cleaner future by 2050, where they're looking to reduce dependence on fossil fuels, gas is still seen as a cleaner transitional fuel. And in terms of self-sufficiency, uh, they're reliant on the Dolphin pipeline, which sources gas from Qatar, 
It's about 2 billion cubic feet per day. And this is an expensive form of gas. And they've been looking to develop their own resources to be self-sufficient and reduce their reliance on imports. Uh, one element of the of of this announcement about the new find in the Jebel Ali area is the cross border nature of it. So the, the, we haven't been able to identify. And I think there's certain sensitivities around saying exactly where this gas field or this gas reservoir is. I understand that most of it is onshore. One day there could be some offshore development of it, um, but we know that it's somewhere in the area of the uh, border of Abu Dhabi and Dubai, somewhere between Jebel Ali and Hantout. Yes, um, and. It struck me as we don't have a lot of, for various reasons, cross-emirate cooperation. And here we, we have announcement of work between Abu Dhabi and Dubai in perhaps the most important sector, which is oil and gas. And that's the first time that at least I, can, I, I understand this has happened. It's, yeah, it looks like it's the first time. Uh, Annok have said it's the first time they will be exploring for gas in Dubai. Now, Dubai has its own... Um, uh, national oil company, you could call it Emirates National Oil Company, and they've have they actually run have a refinery in in Jebel Ali. Now Sharjah has its own company, Sharjah National Oil Company, which announced this uh, discovery of gas. Ras Al Khaimah has its own gas company, and usually these companies operate within the Emirate and are responsible for the licensing, for the exploration and production, and for the distribution of of these resources. And now what we've seen is the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company is cooperating with the Dubai uh, Supply Authority, which is responsible for procuring uh, LNG spot cargoes and ensuring that Dubai has adequate gas supplies to meet its electricity demand. So it's the first time we're seeing this kind of cooperation. ADNOC has had, uh, they've had these gas sales agreements with DUSIP before, but in terms of exploring for gas and helping power Dubai's economy, I think this is the first. It's, it's a shared resource between Dubai and Abu Dhabi that they are developing together. Most of the gas will go to Dubai to fuel its needs. Um, in other sectors, we've seen in property, there have been announcements of developers across uh, the UAE, for example, Aldar and Imar working together potentially. Um, that hasn't really kicked up into gear necessarily, but it would require sort of them developing each other's land. Um, then we've had in financial markets, we've seen efforts by you know in exchanges to work together. But this this seems really significant. It's the me. first time it's happened in energy. And it's the yeah. first time that companies, especially Adnoc, uh, has you know pooled its resources or tried to use its expertise and. In the announcement yesterday, they said they would be deploying horizontal drilling, hydraulic fracturing, all of this. And ADNOC uh, has significant expertise in developing their own gas resources. And as I mentioned before, their sour gas field. So this should be relatively easier for them to develop. But it also shows that the UAE is keen to retain its, you know, its own local uh, expertise in developing this. And ADNOC have come a long way in, in having a solid ground in this rather than inviting international companies to do this. Okay, let's stick with oil, but um, more globally. Uh, and this is related to the, the huge story, of course, that, um, you know, everybody is following the coronavirus outbreak in China. Um, oil prices have dropped um, since the start of the year. They're down about 20% benchmark. Um, they've fallen to year lows this week. And uh, interestingly, 2019 was quite a bullish year for oil prices. They're on average, they were up. Uh, and now we're already seeing a drop. Partly, this is fears of demand. Where are, we, right, where are we going to see the fallout? So a quiet week for you, Jennifer. So from, <laughs> from the UAE to Vienna, where OPEC Plus is now having an emergency meeting to decide how they're going to help course correct. What is your expectation out of that meeting that we're expecting today? 
So the reports out of Vienna and rumors and expectations of analysts is that OPEC will cut another 500,000 barrels uh, at this meeting. Now, it was, it's only a month and a half ago that they met in Vienna and they agreed to, to cut 1.7 million barrels with Saudi Arabia pledging additional voluntary cuts. And this was in response to an oil market last year, which was largely depressed. The U.S.-China trade tensions had, you know, had slowed economic growth. Um, oil demand growth had fallen and they were looking to correct. And by the time we reached January, oil prices because of geopolitical tensions in the Middle East were fairly high, 65. And China now is, as of 2016, the largest oil importer in the world. And so it's sort of a direct correlation, correct? The price is sort of just totally meeting the headlines of coronavirus. Is that a fair assessment? China is the biggest importer. Uh, Chinese factories power the global economy. And a slowdown in China and the country coming to a standstill and people being in lockdown, 60 million, this obviously has an impact um, on, on oil cons- you know, consumed in terms of uh, global jet fuel demand, domestic travel being reduced so in demand. Anticipated loss yeah. of productivity, anticipated loss of travel. Suzanne, you're actually a productivity <laughs> expert. <laughs> Teach us your ways. But, um, so what do, you, what do you see in your own work when headlines like this start to come out and there are shocks in the market? How are your clients are responding? Well, I think most of our clients will have business continuity plans for these sorts of large-scale uh, crises. However, what we have also seen is that some clients might have the business continuity plan in place, but they don't have the cultural leadership to underpin that. And so what happens is when, for example, people are separated physically from the workspace coming together, if they don't have the central nervous system of technology underpinning their organization that can then bring people back together, but virtually their productivity suffers Equally, when you have employees who aren't entirely bought in to uh, the why behind the business, when they get the opportunity not to come into the office, their productivity will dip. They're, because they're on Netflix, they're not on their email account. Exactly, <laughs> okay. because yeah. because there's a because not speaking from personal experience, but <laughs> um, so but. Because right now, what we're seeing globally is sort of this mass social experiment on remote work. Yes. So companies not just in China are saying, even if you've traveled to China, please don't come into work. Is that a fair way to put that? Yes. And a number of our clients have actually been actively saying, if you have been to China, um, if you've been to the offices in China, then and you've gone back to your home country, that you are not to come into the office for at least 15 days to self-quarantine and then uh, get a doctor's certificate to say that you are fit and healthy to return to the workplace. But what this means is that the organizations that have already adopted those more progressive work um, environments and uh, ways of working, their productivity will probably not be too much impacted. Flexible work, summer Thursdays. Is it something you have to practice to be able to work effectively from home? Um, I think it depends on the individual, actually, because uh, an organization that has the culture of being very flexible, working from home, working from a coffee shop, um, yes, the organization is setting a certain level of culture and behavioral expectations and productivity expectations. But then it really boils down to the individual and the motivation of that individual and how their leaders are motivating them and engaging them to be able to go home and work from home and be really geared up to get loads of stuff done. But if their motivation's not there, then of course, yeah, the productivity will dip. What you said about 
employees need to be really connected to the why of their organization. How can leaders kind of disseminate that from the top down and get people to buy in to the why? And does it have to come from the CEO? Definitely, it has to come from the top down because that's the direction of the organization. What tends to happen in a lot of organizations is they hand over these sorts of why communications to the internal comms department. And then the communication of the why becomes very one dimensional. So it's I get an email, I see on the intranet, you know, I'll I'll find that something's been published on our Facebook page or you'll on feel Instagram. Like, right, you'll feel like you're being marketed to by your own. Exactly. Employer. And actually what um has what is missing in those cases is the rich communication and uh the leadership presence of individuals walking around their organizations or connecting via Skype or Zoom on a one-to-one basis with their employees and reminding them of the purpose of the organization or even the higher purpose of an organization. So if an organization's role is to build a hospital, yes, they want to build state-of-the-art hospitals, but the why is to ensure that uh, a whole community gets a better standard of healthcare and better standard of living. So it's being able to translate that why from the strategy and the direction of the organization into words that are meaningful to employees, right down through the, the very fabric of the organization to uh, to even the people who are the outsourced staff who may be cleaning your or cleaning your offices, for example. It, it feels like that's that's what need, any company has needed to do, regardless of the, the regardless current digital technology or transformation yes. that we're going through. But what, how does new technologies or new attitudes or new social behaviors that it, we're currently seeing impact that? Effort. The the new social behaviors, I think, in some organizations have definitely moved with the times of the new generations coming into the workplace. But what you still find is a lot of organizations are operating still like it's the 1990s, and they haven't updated their working practices to accommodate people who are very much more technology savvy on, and are expecting to have a two-way conversation about technology, not just being communicated with in one dimension. So if we take the, going back to the coronavirus, this is now a huge experiment for a lot of organizations who haven't yet had the opportunity to adopt more flexible working practices to see live what's actually going on in their organization and the impact that has maybe one month or two months down the road. If I extrapolate, and a certain amount of this is speculation, but if we have more tools than we used to, um, that, that it shouldn't be as disruptive uh, a crisis like this as previous crisis, whether it's so SARS, SARS or something else, even if it lasts longer, it gets as big. Companies should be productive, which comes back, you know, ties it into the oil, oil demand. They're worried about oil demand because they think, you know, economies and businesses will Reduce slow. productivity. I mean, SARS, but, I think it sliced 1% off China's GDP when SARS hit in 2002. And if we can manage expectations of productivity that it's not going to be kind of gutted in the same way, Maybe yeah. then the we're market not, we're shocks are say lessened. Suzanne Gandhi says, "Don't worry, the productivity." But is not okay, but here. okay. But, so, but it's, it's it's God willing. In a few days from now, coronavirus is contained, and the number of reported cases is going down rather than going up. What do you hope to see in terms of outcomes or insights from companies two weeks, a month, three months from now from this massive social experiment? So, I hope they don't just move on like nothing happened. Um, and what I would want those organizations that, like I said, hadn't quite got to the point where they had more sophisticated working practices and cultures in their organization, that they actually take this opportunity to have a bit of a reassessment of where they are and actually where they want to be. Because 
this is the future of work. This is the way work is going, where people aren't coming into an office every day, but they are connecting via more electronic technological means. So it is really important for organizations to do a lessons learned as a result of this. I, w I wonder also if the technology, there's it, an exponential growth of the power of it. I mean, when 5G really kicks into gear in the next decade, you, it will feel seamless to be communicating when you're not in the same location. While now there's a, you know, there's a delay. I mean, a conference call is awkward still. Right, right. a Skype call is inconsistent, right? There's all sorts of pain points for working from home still, even in 2020. So, so it's a grand experiment. I think we agree. Definitely. And I think it's an experiment that people really need to, to look at the results of what it means for their organizations moving forward. The impact of technology and the fear it can also create um, with all those, you know, technology is going to take over my job is another uh, concern because, you know, people are getting sick. So from uh, an organization perspective, perhaps organizations who, that hadn't looked at automation or looking at co-robotics might think again about um, looking at their future strategy towards automation too. Well, Suzanne Gandhi, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, I think we'll leave it there and we'll see, we'll bring you back at some point in the future to see if the future planned out. <laughs> to talk yes. more future. Yes. <laughs> Thank and, you. And Jennifer Niana, the National's Energy Correspondent, thanks for being with us. Thank you. You, you will definitely be back again soon <laughs> for the oil markets. And Kelsey Warner, the National's Future Editor, thanks so much. Thank you. Before we finish, here are the other stories you need to know about on the national.ae. A call by Europe's aviation regulator to fix potentially dangerous wiring on Boeing's grounded 737 MAX, which the US deems unnecessary, could complicate the jet's return to service. Banks in the UAE are expected to remain resilient despite tougher operating conditions this year, as Abu Dhabi's fiscal stimulus helps propel the Emirates economy and Expo 2020 boosts tourism activity in Dubai. That's according to S&P Global Ratings. And Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government surprised investors by saying it would sell part of its stake in the state-run Life Insurance Corporation of India in what is being called an Aramco-like IPO. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed this show, please do subscribe or leave a review. Uh, all that remains is to thank our production team, Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time. <laughs>